This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me again after a very long hiatus, it's Tony Black. Hi Tony, how are you? I'm great Duncan. It's really nice to be back on Primitive Culture. It has been it's, some time. It's been a while, hasn't it? Well, it's. I think I was on the, uh, the, the live sort of episodes we did, you know, the ones we did at DST and things like yeah. that. But, you know, they're, they're slightly different from us sitting down on you know, our recording software and hashing through a topic. I think that's been getting on for a year. So it's, yeah, it's, it's nice. I feel like I've come home. Hopefully we're going to keep keep tempting you back. You're going to be the Denise Crosby of primitive culture. Which <laughs> means you come back to save the day this time. And then, you know, after that, yeah. you're, you're, you're going to be in villainous mode. Kind yeah. Of- Causing trouble. <laughs> Through an alternate universe. Yeah, you yeah, know, standard, yeah, yeah, yeah. standard, yeah. <laughs> well, well, the reason Tony's um, back with us this time is he got in touch with me and said there was a topic that he was itching to discuss. And rather than me try to uh, kind of lay out what that topic is, I, I think maybe the best thing is if I hand over to you, Tony, and you can uh, talk the listeners uh, and me to some extent uh, through what we're going to be talking about today. Because I have to say, I mean, normally with primitive culture, I, I, I've sort of commented on this on Twitter, I, I, I go a bit overboard on the research. I usually <laughs> have pages and pages and pages of notes. This was something you just uh, got in touch and you said, Duncan, I want to talk about this particular topic. Uh, can I come on and do it? And I said, yeah, sure. Okay. So we're going to kind of fly by the seat of our pants a bit, but um, hopefully we'll have fun. It should be an interesting discussion. So over to you, Tony. Well, I mean, this is, you know, it's one of several episodes really that hopefully you and I will get to do when I can pop on to Trek FM every now and then. And it's one I've been really interested in for a long time. I wanted to come on and look at our future, where we are today and Star Trek's what would be considered Star Trek's future history, as it were. You know, because over the course of all the Star Trek series, going back as far as the 60s, the mythology and the continuity of the whole Star Trek universe has explored aspects of how we got, as, you know, an Enterprise says, from there to here. You know, we we know the circumstances that the Federation and Starfleet were formed, you know, in the mid-22nd century, but what about the steps that took us from our modern sort of nation-based globalized world that we live in now, you know, founded on capitalist principles? And, you know, the, the, the history of Star Trek isn't much different from the history of, of our world today. 
And how do we get from this through to this unified world government by the twenty late twenty first, you know, twenty second century, who abandoned, you know, even the use of money and invested in humanity's sort of scientific and humanistic progression, as it were, instead of the, you know, the drive to for avarice and for, you know, personal gain and things like that. So I, I, what I wanted to explore with this was how how near or far we are to that future, to the future we love seeing and, you know, that is one of the greatest things about Star Trek. You know, I mean, what do you think, Duncan? I mean, do you, how far away do you think we are right now from the United Federation of Planets? Right now, you know, with Brexit looming, I mean, as we're recording in, in like a couple of months' time, it feels like it's quite a way off, I have to say. I mean, you know, there have been times, certainly in my lifetime, where it felt more like we were heading in the right direction. Um, I don't know whether I'd say we are now. I mean, I, I always, it's in, it's an interesting topic, this. It, it does interest me, this idea of this kind of, um, the, the gap, I suppose, between the time that Star Trek is created in, the time that we're consuming it initially, and obviously the future depicted in it. And I guess it, it's it's not actually that often that we get to see all that much of it on screen. I mean, typically we get kind of, um, it's in snatches of dialogue or whatever that this kind of history is is built up. I suppose like the Third World War, you've got an infa- encounter at Farpoint, you've got those uh, soldiers from that period, you've got Q and his courtroom from a, a certain period in kind of, I guess what we would call the history of the future, you know, what is Star Trek's history, but is our future. Um, and then I suppose later on you get, you know, with Star Trek First Contact, with um, Past Tense, I guess would be a good example. Uh, Past Tense, probably the kind of strongest example of when Star Trek actually goes back into that kind of gap period, that kind of uh, period that's somehow supposed to explain the bridge. But at the same time, whenever we do go back to see that bridge, it tends to be the sort of darker moments. It's it's actually, I mean, you know, you say, are we heading in the right direction? Well, maybe we are insofar as we're heading towards, uh, <laughs> we're heading in a pretty bad direction. And according, according to Star Trek, we have to go, you know, we have to hit rock bottom before we kind of pick ourselves up and um, start sort of, you know, heading for the stars again. So, you know, maybe in that sense we are, but it's a kind of interesting question. It's an interesting question for me. I mean, I write history books, so I'm used to talking about, uh, our history and the kind of real history, I find this kind of slightly murky area in Star Trek's history between, you know, 1966 or as we go forward, you know, 2019 and I don't know, I guess whenever the first episode of, um, and well, maybe when first contact, I guess that's, uh, What's that? That's, that's coming pretty soon, right? First contact with the Vulcans is coming in. Mm. Um, what is it? Twenty fifty something? I think it. I think it's. I think it might be. Yeah, I don't know. You know in our though. lifetime, hopefully. But you know, I don't know. Th- th- then there's all, as I say, eugenics wars, World War Three, and there's this whole sort of confusing thing which I have never really bothered to try and wrap my head around about. You know, like people went a bit nuts when Voyager went back in time to the nineties and they were like, hang on, I thought the eugenics wars were happening in Star Trek's 1990s. And clearly somehow actually uh, when Voyager went back, they went back into our 1990s. And I don't know, I've never been all that fussed about that kind of continuity. I don't know why, just because to me, it seems a bit like a sort of big murky, uh, (laughs) the dark ages, it's kind of Star Trek's dark ages, but you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting subject. And over those, you know, 50 odd years, it's true that we have been kind of building and building into that period and getting glimpses and getting bits of information. And even as recently as, you know, um, the episode of Discovery that dropped a week or so ago, New Eden, a story that is basically set from within 
Star Trek's World War Three. You know, that's that's the kind of genesis of that story. So it's interesting that it's a well that they kind of continue to go back to. And I suppose as we get more Trek, as we get, you know, more and more Star Trek content, it's something that perhaps is going to continue to fascinate the writers. And the, the difficulty, I suppose, is as the time shrinks, you know, if we've, we've had 50 years of Star Trek, once we get, you know, if Star Trek lasts for 100 years, if it lasts for 150 years, do you know what I mean? At, at what point does have we really caught up um, with ourselves? And it becomes, it does increasingly become like these are two different universes you know one universe that you and i grew up in uh with the internet mm. and 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 so on and then the yeah. other you know you star trek universe with the kind of imagined technology of, of that kind of period so it's an interesting question and obviously it's something that any science fiction show if it's going to have longevity is going to have to deal with because you know predicting the future is a pretty um tricky prospect uh you know even with, with the best of intentions and the best of um information on the other hand in many respects star trek's done pretty well i mean we might come on later to talk about technology and in terms of technologies i think star trek's done a great job of predicting a lot of future developments and of course inspiring them so there's that weird thing of you know it's the kind of heisenberg uncertainty principle uh is it just kind of are these predictions or is the making of the prediction kind of a way of making it come true one way or another <laughs> that's we will come on to technology definitely i mean it's it, it is there's a lot in there you know you've summarized really well some of the stuff we're going to talk about because it's it is a quite a broad topic and i kind of think well you know the the big crux point of this future history is as you said world war 3 now when this was first you know, sort of suggested, you know, it kind of sort of was there, you know, in the in the original series. I think an encounter at Farpoint kind of, you know, introduced the idea of, of what was called the post-atomic horror, you know, which is a terrifying, you know, phrase. But this was coming at the end of, of the Cold War. And I think this is something that's important to bear in mind that, you know, in the 1960s when Star Trek was created, that, that was, you know, to, in, pretty much in the thick of, of the Cold War era. You know, Star Trek was... Three years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was the closest point of nuclear Armageddon that we've ever fa- that we ever faced, and it comes in the wake of that with this optimistic view of the future. But then, you know, Roddenberry is throwing in these ideas, and you know, in, in the original series, it was the character of um, Colonel Philip Green, who was, um, and we'll talk Isn't more he about the him. head of like Marks and Spencers or something. <laughs> 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 Do you know who he is actually? Evil dictator, you know. Well, he definitely saw that coming. Um, <laughs> but that was that was like one step on on his ladder to, to world domination. It would make it wouldn't surprise me one bit. Colonel Green was a, a, a good example of that kind of genocidal character. You know, he, there's, there's talk about how he kills. He's responsible for the loss of 37 million lives. This is what you know comes out in you know when he he sort of appears in that classic sort of star trek alien form in the episode bread and circuses and then it, you get more a little bit more detail oddly enough in um in a mirror darkly part two in enterprise and then in the episode demons is it bread and circuses or the savage curtain it's i think it, I, I think it might be both that he, i think he's mentioned oh, in right, bread and okay. circuses and then i think it might be the savage curtain where he's actually seen that's right actually you're right i think that there's mention in bread and circuses about you know the the an idea of a despot of idea that that, that World War Three sort of again had a, a sort of like a Hitler kind of figure, a, 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 a sort of a, a sort of a person to sort of angle this this genocide around. And I suppose it's that idea that really World War Three, in in a weird kind of way, in the sixties would have been a fairly simplistic idea of what is likely to happen. You know, in the Cold War era, but by the time you get to the 80s and you know encountering farpoint is 1987 you've got much more of a description of i suppose you've got more of a of a de- sort of a, a detailed sort of visual 
of the post-atomic horror because it was less likely to be a reality by that point. You know, this was the the era of, you know, Glasnost and Perestroika and all these things and then Gorbachev and, every, you know, at the end of the Cold War, you know, Ray, the, the Reagan era. So it was it was a different world when Encountering Farpoint referenced back to World War III and, and put a little bit more flesh on the bones. But I suppose it's it's Star Trek suggesting that in order to reach this future, we've got to go through another and probably an even bigger sort of global cataclysm, a near a near extinction, I suppose, in much grander terms than the the fact that World War Two brought us to the brink of the collapse of what we consider to be our society and then pushed us forward into a different a different era and a different age. And there is obviously the sense that, you know, Star Trek, okay, is a product of the 1960s, so it is a Cold War show. At the same time, it is also, I suppose, you know, the idea of the Federation, you know, it's very, it is very much like people say it's the United Nations in space. There is that sort of idea of all the countries coming together, everyone coming together, you know, the kind of representation that you see in the original series of this idea of a united Earth. And it's even, you know, before they start talking about the Federation, they start talking about the uh, United Earth Space Probe Agency. Isn't that what it's called? I yeah, think. it might be. Um, so, so there is that kind of emphasis on the idea of the world coming together, just in the same way as, you know, to a certain extent, the world did come together after World War II. And some of the legacies of World War II have been kind of, um, you know, exactly the kind of things that we're in the process of dismantling at the moment. You know, these <laughs> kind of close relationships between mm. uh, different uh, countries and different powers and trying to sort of work together and... Um, you know, be one, not necessarily one block, but kind of um, cooperation between different people, which is really what the Federation represents at its best, I suppose. So I guess there is that sort of idea that in some sense, the kind of fallout of World War Two is quite, uh, you know, is a sort of key moment for Star Trek. And in this kind of fictional sense, the fallout of World War Three has to kind of play that role in the kind of imagined future because, you know, there's got to be something in the future that kind of makes that leap. I suppose it's a mixture of different things though as well, isn't it? Because it's also, it's the fallout from World War Three, but then it's also the arrival of the Vulcan. So, you know, we get that in First Contact, all this discussion about how encountering an alien race changes people's perspective. It's a kind of, it's a sort of almost a, a global epiphany that happens not it happens overnight exactly but there is that kind of idea they say don't they within 50 years all these things you know money and and you know whatever war and all these things are kind of out the way that somehow it's this kind of pivotal almost sort of evolutionary moment that the the human race uh steps up a notch you know the human race kind of matures through the process of encountering uh alien beings and i don't know i mean that's you know obviously something that well, I mean, you, you know, you're the expert on the X-Files, as far as we know, has not <laughs> happened so far. But, uh, you, you know, but it, it's, that's quite, that's quite a Star Trek view, the idea that aliens come and aliens coming is going to be the thing that makes us all realise that we're better than we thought we were, and we can work together and we can be less selfish and we can, you know, do away with kind of, um, effectively, you know, do away with the kind of capitalism, extreme capitalism that we have today, you know, where the richest, what is it? 25 something like that richest people in the world mm. have the same amount of money as you know the rest put Everybody together else. or something mm. i mean you know i suppose that would be nice if that's what happens if the aliens come that's quite a kind of uniquely optimistic star trek view that that's what would happen i suspect in reality it could be a bit more of a fraught process uh dealing with something as kind of world-changing and kind of potentially 
a, a potential, you know, especially for kind of global religions, not to say that their religions wouldn't necessarily survive something like that, but they would definitely, that would, you, you know, create a lot of problems in a lot of people's kind of belief systems and understandings about themselves and the universe and so on. And, and you know, whether that would be entirely beneficial, I mean, hopefully it would in the long run, but I suspect it's going to be a bit tougher than uh, than Star Trek predicts in that instance. But th- this is this is what really in- this is why I think you know the twenty first century of Star Trek is a fascinating period that I do hope gets explored either whether it's you know in tie in novels which is less likely or that they find a way to do something you know in this era because I think there there are there, there are massive changes that take place from like you say the world we live in now you know past the point of of first contact, which is actually 2063. So the timeline roughly goes like this. World War Three begins in only seven years from where we are now, which is quite scary, 2026. Okay, that's something to look forward to. Mm, I know. <laughs> and uh, it, it rages for nearly 30 years. So it's a long, long war. It finishes in 2053 um, or thereabouts. And so that that is an extremely long period of warfare, you know. And when you, when you consider that, you know, World War Two was only six years World War One was four years, and the, the damage and you know that was wrought with those wars, you know, this is extremely long period of conflict. So you've you've got a whole chunk, a whole big chunk of the middle twenty first century, which is this conflict, and then the fallout from this, where you know millions and maybe even several billion have been destroyed. You've got this society that you know we see in first contact, you know, when they. When the Enterprise crew go back, and you've got Zephram Cochran and Lily and all these, and it's it feels, if not necessarily agrarian as such, it is it is very sort of patched together and basic. It does feel like almost a post-apocalyptic society in a way. It has it has the 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 technology still, you know, that is still is still there. You know, Zephram Cochran's working on the warp drive, obviously, which is the, one of the biggest steps humanity ever takes. But it's it's in it's in balance with this. You know this post-atomic world, and and you know you've got there, there's there's a lot of ma- there's a massive contradictions. You know when you look into it, in encountering Farpoint, there is there is a mention of how in the year 2079 there was a culture. It's not named which culture, but there was a culture that descended into near barbarism during what was described as the post-atomic horror. Yeah, this is running alongside the. The Klingon, the, uh, the the Klingons, the the Vulcans, the Klingons arriving first would have been different. The- so that would have been interesting, yeah, <laughs> very different. And you know, we've got to hope that we're lucky, and it's the Vulcans. And it's the Vulcans, in, you know, how many years time? Fingers yeah. crossed. <laughs> but the Vulcans arriving, like you say, it would have been this massive, you know, theological, ontological, societal shock to the system that you've had thousands of years of multiple religions that have also many suggested we're, you know, we are the center of the universe and God is, a, and then. Aliens come down. That in itself is a massive, massive thing to change the psyche of human beings. And it, you know, and relatively, you feel like that would be a process that could, in theory, take centuries, as opposed to the fact that by the time we've reached 2060, 2061, or whatever, we've got the Federation and we've got Starfleet. And it seems that a massive, massive amount of, of acceptance and human you know, progress in terms of dealing with things like alien life, in terms of overcoming the fact that, you know, New Eden just the other week was talking about how nuclear bombs were dropped on Indiana in 2053, you know. And th- so you've got an American landscape that has been ravaged by nuclear weapons. That you've got you've got a an atmosphere which is polluted from nuclear radiation. Philip Green, the uh, not the MNS boss, the colonel, was uh, <laughs> was described that he was killing people affected with radiation sickness and what he called impurities 
you know, and, and that is based a lot on nuclear fallout. So, you know, how do you get from that society, that post-apocalyptic society in balance with technology, in balance with this massive revelation of alien life to Starfleet, you know, in, in a matter of 40, 50 years? It seems, you know, and I think it was in um, Enterprise, I think it might have been the pilot, where you see a recording from Zephram Cochrane, which is something like the 2130s, before he disappears and then he, he reappears in uh, TOS, doesn't he? And he's been gone for years. But... So again, you know, you've reached, that's not that far into the future. So, you know, would, I suppose the big thing to think about is, I mean, in, in terms of our future development, now, I don't know if it would be such a quick turnaround to get from this point to that point. On the other hand, I mean, yeah, my, my, my instinct is to say it seems very quick, but I suppose you could say there have been moments in history where things have progressed faster than you might expect. And I mean, certainly... You know, within the last, if you look at, say, technological change in the last 50 or 100 years compared to the 50 or 100 years before that, uh, you know, certain kinds of changes do seem to happen more quickly than, than you might expect. And I suppose technological change maybe is, you could say, potentially happens faster than political change because, it, you know, it can be kind of global in nature. I mean, just in terms of like, if you think of the ways that the world has changed, since we were growing up in the 90s watching Star Trek and, you know, and as I say, you know, 90s Star Trek making predictions about the future and, you know, I mean, they do like in past tense, they do, they do sort of basically have a kind of idea about the internet and so on, but it's, mm. all, it's all slightly <laughs> sketchy, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> you know, and in, and in future's end, they kind of got this guy who seems to be a bit like a sort of, um, sort of Bill Gates character or whatever. And, and, you know, in the nineties, obviously they're, they're riding that wave of the, of that kind of, technological innovation and so on but you know since then the world has been transformed over and over and over again you, you know and some of it is kind of in a very star trek style something like you know i have a an amazon echo in my kitchen that is basically like the star trek computer you know mm -hmm. i talk to mm -hmm. it and it you know if i'm lucky does what i want it to do does it sound like major barrett you know it doesn't sadly no, no that would be that would be a good upgrade I'd, I'd, I'd definitely be keen for that yeah but it you know it does do uh, some of the kind of things that um you know you want something like that to do and obviously you know you've got siri on your phone and you've got mm. you know all these different virtual assistants and so on once they all become kind of integrated and you know your house genuinely becomes this kind of thing in the internet of things you know smart we will basically have that that element of yeah exactly a smart house we will kind of have that sort of star trek future in that in that one kind of um element of daily life but that is quite astonishing to me i mean to me you know i looked at that and i thought that was the d the distant future that was kind of unimaginable and then you know you know a couple of decades later that's that's my sort of daily life w whether something like the kind of societal change that enables the countries of the world to all come together and work together would happen that quickly i don't know but i mean you could say that something like who knows? Maybe the Klingons coming would actually make it more likely to happen. I mean, maybe the Klingons turned up, everyone would suddenly get their, you know, proverbial together and, and sort it out and kind of work together and think, okay, what the hell are we going to do? And that would um, bring people together. I mean, a shared, you know, a kind of a common foe, mm. as, uh, you know, Captain Dathon was well aware, is a good way of bringing people together, you mm. know, and, and we sort of saw that to a large extent in World War Two. You know, maybe if there was a kind of hostile... I'm not wishing this on us because I don't fancy our chances, but you know, it's kind of hostile aliens turn up and, and that would be one way of potentially bringing the world together quite quickly. I don't know what the impact would be of the Vulcans turning up. I mean, if the Vulcans turned up now, it would be a bit of a nightmare. You know, who do they, I mean, 
Okay, so they they went and chatted to Zephram Cochrane. What happened after that? You know, who did they? Mm. Who did he in that kind of post-apocalyptic world? Who did he take them to see next? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Was there a president? I guess there probably was a president of the United States at that point. Did they uh, go and meet with him? Did they? Do you know what I mean? How did they? Um, whoever the Eastern Coalition, who they were fighting in the in the Third World War, you know, how did they get brought on board? What was that process like? Because you know, it seems like that's still pretty raw i mean first contact is post that war i think mm, right mm, i mean that yeah. war has finished and yet lily assumes that picard is uh, an enemy fighter mm. do you know what i mean because he, mm. he, he says i'm not a member of the eastern coalition doesn't he mm. so there's the kind of assumption that even though the war is kind of notionally over it might be still you know sparking off here and there so who knows how you know what what that process is like to bring the whole world together and to be because, you know, if aliens come, it's not really fair for one country to kind of monopolise communication with them, is it? There's got to be a way of them. They, they've got to want to try to, you know, if they say, OK, who speaks for this planet? Well, a lot of different people are going to put their hands up. Well, and this is what's interesting. You know, you mentioned the Eastern Coalition. It's a really interesting thing that exists because, you know, the the, the whole, the fact that this is, you know, one of the things about World War Three and Star Trek is it almost feels like it's a mythical event. It feels like lost history in a way, even though in your Starfleet databanks, they would have the full <laughs> broken down, you know, history of every single thing that happened. But to, to the viewer, it is like a mythical conflict. You know, you don't quite know who it was fought between. You don't quite know who won. You don't quite know what happened to the nation states. You don't quite know where they were when it started and where they were when it ended. And you get this mention of the Eastern Coalition, which has been described by Brannon Braga as originally in the script it was mentioned being referred to as China. And then it was changed because of, you know, fears that it might be a bit politically incorrect and, you know, offensive and that kind of thing. But in the minds of the writers, the Eastern Coalition, as, as opposed to this vague sort of, you know, Axis power, you know, alternate Eastern, you know, group, which presumably involves China, Russia, maybe Middle Eastern states, things like that, was particularly China. You know, and that's the point where it would have been interesting had that stayed in, in the script, whether it was for first contact or elsewhere, that it was a direct mention of, of the emerging superpower particularly in the 90s and noughties, that people were particularly afraid of. You know, in this day and age, I think Russia has kind of reasserted itself as the the enemy again in American minds um, for various different reasons. But, you know, of, of, of before, you know, the, the recent rise of Trumpism and that kind of thing, you would have had China be considered to be the big capitalist villain on the horizon, you know, the new Russia. And this is, and, you know, they were courted as such throughout the, the late 20, you know, first century. There's a classic Nixon, you know, trip to China and all this kind of thing. So they, they were feared for a long time and obviously still being a relatively communist state and, and this kind of thing. So having them as a very, you know, pointed enemy in the Third World War suggests that it was the United States and maybe the Britain, you know, allies versus the East. And, you know, in, in basic, but it's a very basic, that's a very basic way of sort of describing a conflict that wouldn't be that simple, you know, whether it was in terms of how it was actually put across and and would lead to the near obliteration of humanity, you know, if nuclear weapons are being used. But what's really interesting is that, that it's described, actually, the Third World War as being as being started over the issue of genetic manipulation and human genome enhancement, which is fascinating because, and it resulted in that 600 million human beings died, which is, you know, I don't know what the percentage of, 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 of the population that would be, but I'd say it's probably getting on for, well, maybe about 10% of humanity, yeah, were killed. And most of the major cities were destroyed, few governments left, 
and you know they went they they didn't go to war over you know one country helping another or they didn't go to war because someone was assassinated or they didn't go to war because of a you know like a hitler trying to invade territory they went to war through genetics through human manipul- you know manipulation and that is fascinating because it suggests that the the reasons for world war 3 apart from being connected potentially to the eugenics wars and things like that in the star trek history but it was connected to human biological advancement and manipulation of genomes which is a big star trek fear and it's a weird i mean it's it's weird to sort of imagine a war being fought over that i've always been a bit sketchy mm. about the eugenics wars as well i mean I, except that i get that well, my interpretation, without having really looked into this, or, or you know, certainly having read the novels or anything, is that the eugenics war. I took it to be, you know, people like Khan that were created. You know, it's it's when, when we call it a war, it's more like a sort of Frankenstein's monster, kind of out of control. We created these people, and they've turned against us. Or, or you, you know, like Skynet in Terminator or something. It's it's a kind of like you know, uh, we've we've done this meddling, and it, it comes back to bite us on the bum kind of thing. But I'm not quite clear. So you're saying that World War Three in Star Trek is also about eugenics, mm. but is different from the eugenics wars, mm. or is there an overlap there? Or, or I, I, it's not or, clear, or, and I, I, th- I think Maybe we don't know. We don't know, and I think um, you know I, the, 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 there's never been the eugenics wars were never something that was were particularly explained. I mean, you get the closest that anyone's ever come is the Greg Cox tie-in novels, which which are which are really good. They're a really good read. They're not necessarily canon, but they're an excellent read. And, and what Greg Cox does is that because in the in our modern history and necessarily in the history of Star Trek, and this could explain Future's End in Voyager, actually, that the eugenics wars was essentially a covert secret war being, being waged between eugenicists, being waged between terrorist groups, and that it was it was like an underground war. And it was referred to as the eugenics wars because it was different people with wealth, with various different agendas, battling each other on actual battlegrounds. You know, there's the scenes, I think, if I remember rightly, in that novel about Khan when he's younger and he's a prince being fighting like with other genetically enhanced people on like the streets of Belgrade and things like that. So I think it, it sort of it sort of overlaps some of the 90s sort of conflicts, you know, like the genocides in Kosovo and things like that with this idea of a of a secret war, you know, and, and it could well be that the third world war isn't, is a, is an offshoot of that or is a development of that, you know, by that point, it's potential, it's potentially that either, you know, one of the, either the United States or, you know, those powers or the Eastern coalition as they became were experimenting with genetics that they'd found some of this technology, some of this research, and they were trying to create, potentially create super soldiers, potentially create, um, you know, weapons of weapons to defend themselves, weapons of war. And it, maybe that was what tipped everyone over. Maybe that was trying to prevent a master race, if we go back to more of a eugenic parallel, actually lit- being literalized through technology, through developing technology, biological technology. Maybe that was enough to tip the nation states into a war that nearly de- that destroyed the, the status quo, that by the time we got to the the first contact and this is the thing i don't know if if there was a president there you know it's it's very it's very unclear but it you don't uh, my my suspicion is that the united states may not even exist by that point it might just be a collection of of groups you know without a unified sort of whole and that and that's something that that we never quite we never quite learn but it but it is it is very nebulous but it it, it potentially ties into some of the ideas about maybe intentionally maybe not that certain, you know, writers, certain philosophers um, are putting forward about how over the next century, one of the big 
efforts in 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 governments, re, you know, researchers, corporations is going to be attempting to overcome death, or is going to be attempting to extend the human lifespan. You know, writers like um, Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote um, *Sapiens*, *Homo Deus*, fascinating books which talk about our past and our future as human beings. They're talking, he's talking about predictions about, and a lot of philosophers are talking about how we will potentially be biologically or cybernetically upgrading ourselves as we go into the next century to try and stave off death or to try and prolong life. Maybe certain governments, certain you know groups were attempting to do such a thing and they went too far and they created something that, you know, a bit like the atom, a bit like the atom bomb, I guess. You know, it's like it's like something a game changer that maybe certain governments went, we can't do this, you, you can't do this, and it tipped everyone over the edge. And it, that, in its day, in a weird way, Duncan, I kind of feel like, if not this simplistically, something like that could actually be a trigger for a global conflict. Maybe. I mean, who knows? I, uh, <laughs> I find it hard to predict what, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I'm qualified to predict a cause of World War Three, but well, I suppose no. it's possible. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure I want to. Uh, I, I suppose it's, it's possible. It, it does. Science fiction, I suppose, requires you to think a bit outside the box, doesn't it? And it requires you to kind of, I mean, although Star Trek is steeped in history and it does often replay a lot of real world history and kind of takes a lot of inspiration from history, it is ultimately science fiction and it is ultimately an imagined future. And I suppose, you know, who's, who's to say whether that could or couldn't happen or what the kind of mechanism would be through which that happened or, you know, how that would kind of spill over into war or, 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 you know, what a nuclear war would look like. I mean, I think throughout the Cold War, people had a kind of sense of what a nuclear war would look like because they were, you know, almost living with it day by day, anticipating it, you know, duck and cover and all this kind of thing. They were kind of, um, you, you know, they were primed uh, for it to happen at any moment. We fortunately, you know, have grown up in a generation where we haven't really had that. I mean, there's, I suppose there's a possibility of, you know, a dirty bomb going off or something like that. But, you know, we're not really, you know, even with, uh, a bit of a um, loose cannon in the White House uh, and, you know, Putin in Russia and everything, you know, which maybe makes it seem a little bit, uh, you know, things seem a little bit less stable than they did before. Even in that situation, it doesn't seem very likely that we're kind of imminently going to be plunged into that kind of situation. But I mean, you know, who who knows what might end up changing and what, what, to me, I suppose it seems more like it would be to do with the kind of balance of power shifting in different places and, and, and more countries acquiring nuclear weapons and that kind of thing, which obviously is something that for many years we've been trying to sort of put the brakes on rather than a kind of technological development. But I suppose the question is, you know, at what point does, if, if someone makes a technological breakthrough, which is sufficiently dangerous in the same way as the development of the atom bomb itself was, you know, hugely dangerous, uh, that someone else might consider nuking it to try and take that away from them then you you know you do have a kind of um you know a a situation where you could kind of spark off a conflict like that Hmm. um whether that's the way it would ever go you know obviously i guess we hope not but it's interesting the point you made as well you know yes so you've got the eastern coalition on one side we know that america is obviously involved on the other because you know we're in montana and like you say they would explicitly talk about bombs raining down on indiana Hmm. Yeah, I, I suppose the likelihood is we'd be involved in this one too, <laughs> you know, unless we somehow manage to sit it out. Who knows? Maybe, you know, and, and, and I mean, maybe this is why, you know, there's obviously a lot of upheaval in Europe as well, you know, so Picard grows up with an English accent despite living in France. We, you know, who, who knows what else, what other kind of chaos is, is wrought by this. And I mean, in the sense that you say that, uh, America may cease to exist. 
maybe the nation states of the world have all basically collapsed by mm. the time the Vulcans arrive and we've kind of regressed into this you know much more sort of a, a primitive culture you know you know we have really regressed to a much more primitive state if that's the case then it becomes even harder to kind of work out so how do they get from there to enterprise i guess they've got some help uh, slightly reluctant help from the Vulcans <laughs> I mean, I don't know what, because there's also this sort of question, you know, we see over and over again in Star Trek, um, the Prime Directive, and is this a warp-capable species, and what level of, you know, are they uh, sophisticated enough to cope with the idea of first contact, and so on. And we understand as well that the idea, the sort of concept of first contact protocols have been incorporated by Starfleet from the Vulcans. You know, they've, the Vulcans are the ones kind of in Enterprise saying, well, these are sort of the rules, and we don't mess with a culture in this situation and you, you know you get quite a strong sense that the development of those ideas that Starfleet takes on board have sort of come from previous you know Vulcan ideas about how mm. to deal with alien races and so on but at the same time there's this weird sense you know if what you say is true and, and Earth is in this complete chaos after World War Three and hasn't really picked itself up very much which you're right is sort of what we're seeing in Star Trek First Contact in that it doesn't seem like they've completely picked themselves up they're, they're developing this advanced technology but at the same time they're living in this weird sort of shanty town or whatever mm. then there's this weird kind of question because earth in star trek first contact or at least montana in star trek first contact which is all we see of it is in a much more primitive state than the planet in the tng episode first contact which mm. is dealing with this kind of you know how do we cope with the you, you know which is a pre-warp civilization and therefore you know they're not really supposed to know that there are aliens out there and how are they going to cope with that and obviously it's interesting i mean that's an interesting counterpoint because in that instance it's all about you know this will create panic people won't know what to do this will be awful you know if they find out there are aliens what on earth is going to happen it's going to be chaotic and disastrous in star trek first contact we're going to find out there are aliens and we're all going to come together and kind of realize oh you know yeah, we had wars with each other and that was stupid and, you know, let's put all that behind us and kind of embrace the future. Which obviously, you know, we're Star Trek fans, that's what we want, to, you know, mm. that, well, that's what anyone would want to happen, but that's also what we're kind of invested in because that's the future we want to get to. Mm. But at the same time, it's it's interesting that that, it, to me, it feels like that outcome is not guaranteed from that scenario. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And it doesn't take, as we see in Enterprise, Zephyrin Cochran, you know, pulling out his shotgun and, and, and <laughs> shooting the Vulcan guy or whatever for things to go in a very different direction that 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 I mean over and over again Star Trek tells us how precarious first contact is how wrong it can go how you know uh, if it's not handled properly it can lead to catastrophe war potentially societal disaster as well you know maybe that Vulcan guy handled it really well and he, you know mm. he, he was mm. there you know listening along to ubi Doobie and kind of trying to get involved <laughs> and make a good impression and obviously he did a good job of it yeah but at the same time you know we know by the time of enterprise the relationship with the vulcans has become quite tense but you know it could have been an awful lot worse it could have been a much more problematic situation and how much is humanity's kind of coming together actually i mean in enterprise we see the vulcans are being quite sort of meddlesome in some ways they're quite they're, they're, they're more, or at least they're very kind of strict about what they will and won't do, which I guess, fair enough, is what the Federation and Starfleet, you know, would subsequently do with other planets and so on. But at the same time, there's a kind of, you sort of wonder, this this whole thing of coming together and everything and embracing peace and being much more enlightened, is that partly coming because it was the Vulcans and because the Vulcans have actually put themselves in this role of kind of almost sort of guardians of humanity that they're gonna they're not just gonna turn up and say yeah you've created warp drive that's great okay you know keep going um get in touch in a 
hundred years or whatever, they're actually kind of sticking around and they're kind of getting involved and they're, um, they almost seem to be sort of shepherding human beings, but the, in this kind of parental role, because mm. in those early episodes of Enterprise, there's this resentment, you know, we want to go faster. We've broken this thing. We've worked this thing out, you know, kind of like let go of the reins, basically stop, stop kind of holding us back. So there is that kind of weird thing that the Vulcans have sort of become these sort of benign, not exactly occupiers, but these, these kind of benign observers who are there and sort of, okay, maybe they're not meddling too much, but they're sort of, they're not totally hands off, if you know what I mean. They're obviously there and they're having some kind of influence. And whether that is one of the key things that really brings, you know, humanity to the, the humanity of Starfleet is more in line with Vulcan ideals than the humanity of, you know, the present day. I, I think I think there could be a lot to that because when if you think about you know how level headed Starfleet is and a lot of the principles you know you mentioned the Prime Directive things like that I mean I, I'm not convinced if um, you know Donald Trump's Space Force ever happened and we <laughs> and we started to explore the universe I don't really don't necessarily think that uh, when you look at nation when you look at nations armies right now when you look at um, you know a lot of the navies and things like that I don't necessarily think everyone is operating with a level headedness and necessarily a strict code like they should be you know especially given governments have agendas you know and there are different you know um things at play in terms of you know the targets being chosen friendly fire all this kind of thing i don't know if the starfleet principles of exploration would be as easy to come by if they were purely based on human human ideas human you know humans completely in charge i i think i think vulcans definitely and their logic and their control in the wake of something like World War Three, where humanity have nearly brought themselves to the to district to extinction, and the Vulcans come in and say, "Look, you've invented this technology that means you're you're intelligent enough to explore the universe. You know, you have you've mastered the speed of light. However, you guys are still in a mess. You know, you don't have a centralized system. You don't have governments. You don't have people to to and and it, it would have made sense for them over the over the next you know half a century or more." to actually help them put those systems in place. I suppose a little bit like, and this isn't always a good thing, don't get me wrong, but a little bit like an America going into a post-Iraq war um, the Middle East and trying to prop up governments and prop up democracy in these areas. And quite often that leads to more problems. But the, the in theory, the, the the effort is a noble one. The effort is is to try and actually help these people, you know, reach some level of, democratic civilization where people have freedoms and rights and things like that or even like un peacekeepers yeah, or, yeah. um election monitors it's, yeah that, i suppose that's what the the vulcan role sort of reminds me of is exactly those kind of roles where we go in in a kind of benign way to a more you know i mean in inverted commas more primitive country you mm. know a country that mm. is struggling with these kind of things that we like to believe that we sort of move beyond in, in our own countries <laughs> yeah and that we go in and we sort of supervise a little bit and keep an eye on things and kind of you know i mean uh, and there is this sort of question there with how how involved do you get it does it go as far as you know what they talked about in the iraq war regime change where you actually you you know are going to get rid of one leader and bring in another and so on you're going to be quite quite heavy sort of heavy-handed meddling in that sense or is it a more you know like i say the kind of peacekeepers role or something like that where it's sort of you know you're, you're sort of there but you're kind of half in the shadows somehow you know trying not to try not to take over but at the same time be there uh, you know and certainly for the vulcans it does seem like they're being there in this sort of mentoring role um 
where it's very much the assumption is we know a lot more than you guys you know we're the experts we're here to help at the same time the reason they're frustrating is that they're not as helpful as maybe they should be and you know there's this sort of question mark could they could they be doing more and are they actually impeding progress by you know maybe they're insisting that humans do things the way the vulcans would have done them i mean the vulcan development of you know from warp one to warp two to whatever and so on was probably extremely methodical and logical and you know took a long time and was done very carefully and you know dotted all the i's and crossed all the t's and so on maybe the human way of doing it would have been a bit more ramshackle and a bit more kind of um stop starty and a few things might have blown up along the way but at the same time we might have got there quicker and i suppose that's the sense you get in enterprises the vulcans are saying no you've got to you know do everything by the book and you know um this happens first and then this thing and you know you're not ready to do that thing yet and it is very much like that kind of you know sort of the parent or the teacher i suppose it's the teacher saying you've got to do things properly you know and the the maverick student with the brilliant ideas who kind of wants to go off and reinvent the wheel you know and 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 kind of create their own future and i suppose that's definitely there i think in that relationship is that idea of like how much is and it's important of course for star trek that the humans are pushing back against the vulcans because we don't really want to have the idea that the key thing that happened and obviously you could say enterprise is in a sense a sequel to star trek first contact because Mm. The fact that it's the Vulcans in Star Trek First Contact is one of my favourite things about that film is that reveal. And they don't, you know, until that Vulcan guy steps out of the ship, I don't think it's ever been mentioned that the aliens who are going to play this role are the Vulcans. Do you know what I mean? That is a real... And we sort of think of it as obvious, yes, it's First Contact with the Vulcans. But the way that the film played it, and certainly, you know, going to see that film in the cinema, I had no idea it was going to be the Vulcans. And they keep talking about, you know, meeting an alien race. And... I don't know why. When I was watching it the first time, which was a long time ago, you know, I wasn't really thinking. I was probably too focused on the Borg and everything. I wasn't really thinking, okay, who who are the aliens? Who are these aliens? I, it didn't really seem like a big deal or a big question. And then it turns out the Vulcans and you're like, okay, that makes perfect sense. And that's mm. a great reveal and a great kind of um, a real moment for Star Trek. But at the same time, we do want to feel that, you know, that's not the end of the journey. That's kind of the start. That's kind of the starting point of Star Trek history, in a sense, Mm. as opposed to Star Trek prehistory. And it's kind of important, I think, that, you know, we don't abandon 21st century capitalism because these, you know, very calm and measured and reasonable and slightly annoying uh, (laughs) people come along and tell us, you know, now you really should get rid of money because, you know, we don't have that on Vulcan and we're doing Mm. much better without it. That somehow that comes from us. It comes from within, you know, it's not just a set of rules handed down, you know, almost like a kind, like the Ten Commandments, like a kind Mm. of, or like the, you know, all these ideas about aliens interfering with human development, you know, you go to 2001 or something like that and the monoliths, Mm. you know, this kind of idea of, you know, something comes from outside Earth coming and um, tweaking things a bit or telling us what to do or kind of pushing us in a certain direction. I think it's quite important for Star Trek that we feel that Starfleet and the Federation and all of that comes out of something that is intrinsic to us. And certainly you see that in Enterprise with the kind of birth of the, well, it's the coalition at that point, not the Federation, but, you know, that it's the humans that are the driving force behind that. Um, And the Vulcans are there and are involved, but actually... You know, the Vulcans are in the middle of this dispute with the Andorians at that point, and it's the humans who are the ones kind of pushing for this um, alliance and this kind of what ultimately is the thing that kind of brings us into the kind of 
the rest of the Star Trek future. Yeah, and, and what's what's even more interesting, you know, talking about Enterprise, is that the the very sort of the last what a lot of people I think would would try and imagine were the last two episodes of Enterprise, Demons and Terra Prime, which obviously introduces this idea of of a xenophobic movement in the 22nd century. One of the yeah, th- what- clearly that would never happen. Would it? <laughs> mm, indeed. Well, this is one of the things that they, you know, part, apart from the fact they go back to Colonel Green and use his idea of purity as a credo, very much painting Green as a as a Hitler, very much painting him as a, a you know, a eugenic uh, obsessive willing to commit genocide to, you know, wash away the impurities of humanity. But one of the things they say is that one of the one of the aspects of the xenophobia is that they blame the Vulcans for not stopping the war with their superior technology. So only getting involved once humanity's passed this and they've they've shown they can reach the stars. But what they're what they're advocating in that sense is is a god coming down and saving everybody, you know? And and so it, it adds an, an extra sort of religious aspect to to the Vulcans without necessarily going down that road, because Star Trek doesn't always overtly go down that road. But it, it is this idea that they're angry at an alien race for not stopping something that humanity itself has created, and you know it's it's another prime directive. You know, like you say, you know it's 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 it, the suggestion is that the Vulcans hadn't noticed Earth before the warp test, but you know who knows? You know, certainly other alien races had visited well, Earth apart in the from past. Suppose you know grandmother or whoever she was who was uh, <laughs> right. Well, yeah, knocking <laughs> around in the nineteen fifties, wasn't she? But right, yeah, exactly. I, so, I agree. They, that, that, that's that's the story in First Contact is that it's kind of not on the radar. Mm. It's like totally irrelevant this planet and until they see that. Uh, you know, warp, whatever it is, warp test. They, but they it, see that kind of warp test and that that catches their attention but that seems unlikely doesn't it that they wouldn't have any idea earth isn't very far from vulcan so if they've no if they're traveling around the galaxy you know it, it seems odd that they wouldn't necessarily have noticed earth at least and known done some cursory scouting and and noticed that this this planet was in in trouble you know these people these primitives are going to war on each other with vast powerful weapons but maybe it's like you know they probably got three hundred other planets in that kind of yeah. stage of you know sort of post-industrial, post-atom, you know, atomic or post-atomic kind of uh, development that they're maybe vaguely keeping an eye on, and you know they come back fifty years later and oh whoops, half of them have blown themselves up, and you, you know who knows what's what's going on there, and they're kind of but that's their rule is like we don't get involved, we're just not you know maybe it's true they're just not interested. Uh, so that's not to say that they don't know that something's happening down there, but they certainly don't see any responsibility for dealing with it. Unlike, interestingly, I mean, we mentioned New Eden. I mean, at this stage when we're recording, you know, we're only a few episodes into Discovery's second season. We don't really know what's going on, but you know, these, this red angel appears to have stepped in and exactly, uh, you, you know, and, the whole episode takes place in a church and there is this sense of kind of divine intervention, this kind of alien, godlike alien that steps in and saves a bunch of people and, um, you know, takes them to the promised land in the beta quadrant, wherever it is. And, and there is this kind of sense, you know, yes, if, if the Terra Prime people are saying, well, the Vulcans should have, um, you know, done more to stop that. That is kind of what the, the Red Angel seems to be doing in that storyline. And obviously we'll have to wait and see how that kind of works itself out. But, I suppose there is an interesting kind of question there. And I suppose it's interesting as well in terms of the sort of xenophobic movement. I mean, you know, I joked about watching Enterprise how many years ago. We, we thought maybe something like that would never happen. And now it has. And, and I do find watching those episodes today 
it there is a really eerie kind of mm. that the guy Paxton does have a, an absolute kind of Farage quality <laughs> about him. I think there is something about that kind of populist yeah. leader, which is so kind of skin crawlingly, you know, loathsome. Uh, quite apart from how obviously evil and deranged he is, um, that there is that kind of weird parallel there. But of course, in the real world you know, the racism and xenophobia and so on, certainly in Britain, is directed towards people who are, you know, who are immigrants, who are kind of lower status, who are poor, who are kind of, you know, there's this idea, yeah, they're taking our jobs or whatever. But then it's very different from the situation with the Vulcans, where they're advanced, they're technologically superior. There's this kind of, you know, there's this kind of idea for the Terra Prime people of, you know, we're the kind of downtrodden Terrans, in a sense, with a kind of, you, you know, the, the fact that these aliens are all more advanced and more technological, we don't really trust them, we don't really, you know, that sort of plays into it. Uh, although I suppose you could say that, you know, even with something uh, like UKIP and, and Brexit and so on, there is this sort of sense of of seeing ourselves as England in this very sort of old-fashioned and traditional and sort of nostalgic way. I mean, nostalgia is a big part of that. And of course, also, you know, we were started off talking about World War II and the influence of World War II, this obsession with World War II. And, you know, we won World War II. And, and you know, this kind of, you know, that was the day when Britain was Britain. And, you know, and, um, you know, and these kind of ideas about going back to this past that, you know, in many ways never really existed in the first place. And that sort of if we could have only stopped the clock of history, if we could have only stopped things from changing, somehow life would be better. Of course, it wouldn't, you know, I mean, in many, many ways, life has improved immeasurably in the uh, whatever it is, 70 or 80 years since World War Two. But that's the kind of fantasy is somehow that was our that was our moment. That's when we I suppose that's when we meant something in the world. That is when we sort of, you know, like to think we saved the world. And to some extent, you know, there's there's a degree of truth in that, though. In fact, it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. But it's that kind of, mo- that idea of going back to this kind of moment where we, you know, we meant something and we feel that we've, mm. we've, we've lost that somehow. We've lost that kind of identity. We've become this sort of less significant kind of... um less pure all you know all, all of these kind of ideas you know we don't have our empire anymore we don't have any of this stuff anymore but at the same time it's kind of it, you know it, it, it is this this sort of weird fantasy and and I, I suppose it is interesting that star trek does a sort of version of it and it does have all the sort of xenophobia and so on and it does but and i suppose it is that sort of same thing that you know from our perspective watching a science fiction program it's weird the first time i saw those episodes i thought it was weird because i was like this does not feel like Star Trek. This doesn't feel like, I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't mean mm. oh, this, this doesn't feel like Star Trek, but it, it didn't fit. This didn't feel like a Star Trek villain. I watched that guy, um, Paxton, and I thought I could see him in Babylon 5. I could see him in a different kind of show. <laughs> yes, yeah. I've never seen anyone like this, I don't think, in Star Trek. This is not what Star Trek villains look like. This is like the kind of bastard who screws up the real world. <laughs> you know, this is not a kind of sci fi <laughs> fictional villain. But actually, I liked him for that. I think, you know, he, he was a really interesting, compelling and kind of believable, um, character, I think, in many ways, partly because he seemed so, so because I suppose because he seemed to come from our world, not from Star Trek's world. Definitely. And I think it's one of those things where Terra Prime was maybe a little bit prophetic and looking over the next hill because, you know, what, what you described with, you know, UKIP, Brexit, Farage, is exactly the same thing that's happening in America with Make America Great Again. This nostalgia for a, you know, a, a, a mythical past that never existed, for this greatness, this, and importantly, this 
idea of a culture being eroded or a, a or the advance of multiculturalism taking away the essence of what we are and you know the 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 great irony is particularly with america is that it's a nation built on immigration you know that that and that's been something that's been there you know prejudices you know going back as far as how when the irish arrived as, and as you know in the 18 in the 19th century and the long battle you know in order to to go from the Irish arriving on, on the shores of America to the first Catholic president in Kennedy, you know, and, and this this whole sort of journey of the immigrant. And now it's something that people are fighting back before against. before that, I mean, America is a nation of, is, is founded out well, of immigration precisely. in the first place. Precisely. I mean, you know, they're not making America great again to when the 500 nations were all in charge, are they? <laughs> no. Do you know what I mean? It's it, like, it's, 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 it's this it's imagined... It ignores that element of history. Well, exactly. And it's this imagined idea of this pure you know, American race. Like, like you know, it's happening in England with the with the nationalist agenda about this pure British race, you know. And and it's the whole thing in Terra Prime is this going back to this pure human race, you know. And and in, in, interestingly, there was a less... Um, in the episode uh, of TNG, Up the Long Ladder, there was a, there's indications of a less aggressive form of something trying to recapture what... Uh, sort of, sort of the world that existed before in something called neo transcendentalism, which is a uh, happens in the early twenty twenty second century, and it's this group um, led by a charismatic leader who decide they want to go back to more of a traditional way of living, to almost almost like a a, ret- a return to a simpler life. The, the founder a character called Liam Deegan says. In response to the carnage of the war, it's this desperate yearning to return to a simpler form of humanity, maybe one without without space travel, without aliens, without this possibility of a future that is scary. And I, I think that the big parallel with what we're going through right now and why I think Star Trek's future history, particularly right now, is interesting. You know, you did an episode recently on past tense, which is quite terrifying to watch now because it's incredibly... It feels incredibly like we're slipping towards that kind of world. It's really quite scary. Particularly right now, this looking at this future history is interesting because I think when you when you look at this this yearning to return to a, a world that that may never have existed, it always always feels in in it's a pushback against true advancement. You know, we're in lots of ways, you're absolutely right when you say the world is, is better than it used to be. You know, we've grown up with luxuries and with freedoms and with, you know, the rights to do things and with emerging technology that our parents and our, especially our grandparents would ne- never had. They, you know, and, and beyond that, they had it even worse. You know, there were so many more people who were poor, so many more people who were dying young, so many more people who couldn't eat food, eat, who were starving, you know. Even as, you know, know, we're talking 75 years ago or whatever, people were being murdered and butchered in the millions. And that, and, you know, it's, it's easy to think that we have, you know, the world is, was better in the past, but the reality is it is on the whole for many people. It is good. You know, things have improved and, and we're edging towards a world where there's a lot more equality. There are a lot more human rights. And it almost feels like a lot of these movements and a lot of these things that are reflected in some of the Star Trek future and and where that headed is this pushback against that there are a lot of people right now in the human race who really are wanting to get to this kind of Star Trek future, if not Starfleet and the United Federation of Planets, at least get into a future where we don't think necessarily in terms of nations, nationalism, 
states. We think in terms of humans and humanity, humanistic approach. And it feels like there's almost a, a ideological war between these two sides happening. And whether we end up with a World War Three, <laughs> let's hope not. But it almost feels like whether that's exactly what happened in Star Trek, probably it may not have been exactly the same. But you do wonder if there might have been some of that push pull in that sort of invite, you know, in that sort of possible imagined future. I guess that you know the world has changed. You know, even in the last few years. I mean, if you think about things like elections, you know, the way that elections are won and fought. I mean, talking about Brexit, uh, we had that drama on recently. You know, with Benedict Cumberbatch looking at the ways that that campaign was fought. That was a, you know, I think a real um, watershed just for a polit- political a watershed for a political campaign in terms of the kind of strategies used, the kind of relationship uh, between truth and facts and you know what what uh, a reinvention of you you know what in the 90s was referred to as spin and this idea that you know you could kind of use pr and you could kind of spin things a certain way so you know there's the truth but you could kind of put a certain uh, interpretation on it to the idea that you could basically just lie and just say things that aren't true and you, you know if you say it often enough or loud enough or whatever you'll kind of get away with it um and obviously we saw the same thing you know we've seen the same thing with trump and all this stuff about fake news and alternative facts and this whole idea that kind of truth has become it's like we're living in this sort of postmodern world somehow where where you know truth no longer exists and therefore you know who knows history no longer exists either and you know it it, it is dangerous i mean there was a study last week saying that um what was it something like 1 in 20 people in the uk mm. don't believe the holocaust happened yeah. you know terrifying yeah. uh historical you know blindness of mm. that kind of nature which is you know genuinely scary and the way that technology actually plays a part in that because of the way that information can be disseminated um you know to the individuals which i guess was the the thing in the brexit campaign this idea that you you know you tailor your messages to specific people and you're you know you're hitting them with facebook ads that no one else well not no one else but you know that that person is seeing the particular ad designed to kind of um get them to think something and this kind of you know that the idea that oh no one wants to hear from experts anymore you know people everyone's opinion is equally valid uh every version of history is equally valid you, you know all these kind of things um they have you, you were saying something more optimistic <laughs> i don't want to sound too negative, <laughs> but they have also they have changed they are game changers i think these yeah. things and they will you know going forward i mean we'll sort of have to wait and see you know what is the next referee not that i'm assuming we're going to get one on brexit but you know what is the next uh big issue that's debated gonna look like what are the next few elections going to look like you know how how are we going to come back from this because in a way it sort of seems like it's kind of a one-way trajectory and what impact is that going to have? And what impact is that going to have in terms of how much trust people have in their leaders? Are there sort of basic ideas about the kind of trust in institutions that are going to break down? You know, are we going to... Because potentially there's a real crisis. And I, and I think that often where we have had these rather dubious results, um, and I'm thinking, for example, you know, the whole question in America about what was... Russia's role in the election and what was, you know, we've had these, you know, we had that, we had the same thing with the Brexit referendum. Um, you know, was it legitimate? We know they overspent, therefore that, you know, the election spending was illegal. Does that mean that the election itself is illegal? You know, what does it mean if, if there are just blatant lies involved in, in persuading people of things that were never genuine intentions in the first place and certainly never, uh, possible? But it feels like from the institutions, there's this real kind of desire to say, 
okay, that was the official, that was the democratic result. It has to be respected. We're going to respect this, whether we agree with it or not, whether we think there's something dubious going on or not. You know, we had the police saying they're going to decline to actually investigate some of these things because they think they're too politically sensitive if it turns out that, you know, things were illegal or were not done properly. So there's this real kind of desire to say sort of from the top down, even when we get a terrible result, even when something happens that we really don't want, we're going to respect the system to the extent that we kind of pretend that it was all totally above board and it was all okay. And I do wonder what impact does that have ultimately on the people? And we know that, you know, in the last few weeks they've been talking about with Brexit and the planning for Brexit, they are anticipating social unrest. They are anticipating, you know, we could have riots in the streets. We could have large scale social unrest. You know, we have a country and America does too, I think at the moment, which is really, you know, split down the middle and, you know, the level of kind of anger and rage on both sides and the kind of inability to find any common ground. And, you know, in that campaign, we had an MP who was, you know, murdered by by someone who disagreed with her. I mean, you know, we are in a situation where things are in a very kind of um tense and confrontational mode. And we also have a younger generation who, you know, to look more optimistically, maybe we have to hope they're going to change the world. You know, they seem quite switched on. They seem quite kind of, you know, what you were saying about this belief in a shared humanity and kind of moving forward. They seem quite kind of politically engaged. They seem to have good, decent kind of uh, attitudes to things. Maybe they're going to be the ones who are going to sort it all out. You know, um, not our generation probably, but I mean, who knows? Uh, I think that the, you know, the world is changing and the, and the kind of interaction between people and the state and the and their leaders and all these sort of things are shifting you know we've seen mm. them shift in the last few years and i don't know what in 10 20 30 years the impact of that could be it, it may be that we find that we're living in a very different world to the one that we've grown up in yeah we do live in a in a vastly different world there's there's no getting around that i mean you know 20 years ago when i was the age of you know the kind of teenagers I work with on a daily basis. It was it was a completely different world. It was Deep Space Nine was coming to an end. You know, nineteen ninety nine, and everyone was you know it was the the millennium was about to happen, and, and you know it was pre nine eleven. At which point, a lot of things changed as well in terms of governments and politics, and you know it was it was a very different world. And and it's it's easy. And again, that's where the nostalgia comes in. It is easy for people to look back at, at the time when they were younger and the time when things seemed simpler. You know, and think, oh, that's that's what we want to get back to. But the reality is, things weren't simpler. Things were complicated. Things were there were problems. There were wars. There were s- systems that didn't work. Systems that were breaking down. There were fears among the population. You know, it, it, it's people forget. It's people are very quick to forget history, and they're very quick to forget their own history and the, the you know the story of their own past. And right now, with like you say, with the way technology has developed and the way news and truth is is confused and is in a state of manipulation without question by people with agendas it 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 is an uncertain path whether it leads to something as cataclysmic as happens in the star trek future history is debatable my my if i was a betting man i suspect it won't i suspect that one of the things the star trek you know writers in future history never quite understood and you mentioned this earlier is quite the role of in the internet is quite the role of the online world is quite the role of how technology and the our interface with it you know not none of these 90s or obviously 60s kind of shows 
predicted our black mirror obsession with the, the the black box in our hand you know not not really well or even like to the level of i mean on mission log they they joke about this um you know the the fact that say the the pad you you know you could say say star trek invented the ipad okay so mm. in next gen everyone has these pads everywhere yeah. but it never occurred to them the idea that one pad could have more than one thing on it at a <laughs> time do you know what i mean so there's like that yeah. the, the idea the prediction is there it's, it's you know it's a brilliant idea okay so there's this there's this device it's very convenient you can carry it around with you it's a bit like a book it's got a flat screen it's got a touch screen and i know that there's something similar in 2001 and maybe they took it from there so it's not necessarily star trek that invented it but you know they 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 certainly popularized and and made it an integral part of their world insofar as you know there's probably a pad in every episode of of tng ds9 voyager kind of for that whole stretch but somehow they were limited in their imagination to thinking okay it's a bit like a book so each one is a bit like a book so you know in the same way as you might get three books off the shelf you get three pads out and you know just something as basic as that that where instantly real life technology you know, once they developed the iPad and they became very popular very quickly, probably in part because we'd had decades of being primed by Star Trek to think that this was something we were going to have in the future and it was a big deal. Uh, almost immediately, the the real life version outstrips the fictional version. And I think with the internet, it's the same kind of thing. So as much as Star Trek did predict a lot of technology accurately um, and inspired a lot of technology, something like the internet you know, maybe when, you know, when we were kids, it was almost, and it's hard, I think, for anyone younger than us to understand. I mean, I think we do come from a generation, my partner and I were talking about this um, the other day, she was saying, you know, we're the kind of the 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 last analog de- generation mm. basically that we do remember the VHS tapes and yeah. we do remember the kind of you know, the technology before everything was digitalized and we do remember a life before uh, the internet. You mm. know, I remember, I mean, my mum got the internet quite early i think it was still quite a sort of new thing and i remember partly because um i had an uh, an aunt who was working for microsoft at the time and an uncle who was working uh for american express in kind of um you know computery stuff and was also into kind of cutting edge computing stuff and so they sort of talked her into getting this thing the internet so she, she you know got it on her computer and whatever and we had this modem that made all these awful noises <laughs> but i remember the first time we installed all of this and it was all incredibly complicated and and you know uh difficult at the time to get it all going and then we got this thing up that was like the web browser and i was like well now what <laughs> you've yeah. got this thing that everyone's talking about supposedly the future is this great thing and i just didn't know what to do with it because it's in, and that's the thing with a new technology you're kind of a large part of it is um you, you have to sort of integrate it into your life but at first it is just this alien thing and you sort of think well what do i use this for you know what, mm. what, what, what okay it's sitting there on the screen now and i just i literally don't know what to do with it i don't know what it's i don't know how it's supposed to enhance my life or not and you know for someone of a younger generation that is almost inconceivable to to comprehend in some ways i suppose because it's so much part of the culture and it's so much part of you know and everyone has a website everything has a website everyone Mm. has a kind of online presence Mm. um one way or another but you know in those days that absolutely wasn't the case uh and you know something like facebook you know when facebook came along that was a, a totally radical concept or myspace i suppose you know this idea that you had your own you know your own little chunk of the internet because previously it was it was companies and corporations who had web pages and you could go there and maybe read information or find opening times or inf- you know it was it was a bit like a library that you might search but the idea that everyone could open their own stall and kind of say this is me again completely radical um 
shift that, you know, something like Star Trek in that period couldn't possibly have predicted uh, Mm. something like that, I don't think, and didn't. On the other hand, you know, they did predict an awful lot of things and inspired an awful lot of things. And there are a lot of things today that, you know, something like uh, Alexa on the Amazon Echo, you know, it's no coincidence that one of the wake words they added is computer. So you can literally pretend you're in a Star Trek episode, you know, um, you know the, iPad, the fact they called it a pad. I mean, yeah, it is yeah. kind of pad shape, but I'm sure that is, you know, that's not coincidental. That is kind of, um, yeah. you know, marketing driven by that kind of Star Trek history. Mm. The fact that early flip phones, mm. you know, consciously mirrored the, the look of the communicators in Star Trek. Mm. And there was an interesting thing I saw that there was, they were talking about um, with Discovery, you know, going back to those flip communicators, that the way that people were using them was different because, you know, the people who were of the generation that actually grew up with flip phones were holding them more like a phone and less like a communicator in Star Trek. And they had to be sort of told, no, in Star Trek, they hold them like, you know, look at the original series, this is how they hold them from an era when it was just a prop and it didn't do anything Mm. and no one had ever used anything like that before. So again, there's that sort of, on on, literally on an unconscious level, that that technology kind of works its way into your life. And, um, you know, when it it has to become familiar enough that you you know your behavior around it it's a bit like you know if you never smoked a cigarette and you have to smoke a cigarette um you, you know in a tv show or in a play or something mm. you, you're holding it wrong you're not doing it naturally you're not you, you know you're because your body is not um familiar with that kind of routine and it's the same sort of thing with a new technology you have this kind of um process of getting to know it and getting to learn how does it you know how how do you kind of merge with that technology in a sense i think this is more likely to be the road we go down i think realistically i think i think if if i'm honest i think a more in its own way a more realistic depiction of where we might end up in in fifth in, in well less than 50 years in maybe 10 20 30 years is the novel ready player one Really, I think which I I believe you're a, you you're a fan of Duncan. I'm sure we've, we've I am, talked yeah, about I love this. That novel. Yeah, it, yeah. It's a great it's a great novel, and I think I think it could end up being in its own way quite prophetic in that it, it's it's very much about how we escape. You know, we escape into these imagined worlds. We escape into you know a world in terms of Ready Player One, and this is where it's drawn as much criticism as praise. It's about nostalgia. It is escaping into a world where you can just live in the Starfleet universe if you want to you could essentially live in the world of Star Trek you know through a visor on your head that taps you into an, an, an internet which has gone way beyond the realms of anything you can conceive and and I think while, while the while the world around you just collapses into into nothingness really and I think that's could be the sadder trajectory we go on as opposed to a giant nuclear cataclysm necessarily. I think the, the social collapse of world order, you know, you talked about the, the lack of trust in systems and governments. And, and I think you're more likely to see almost like a, a, a this is probably a, a, an over-characterized way of, of saying it, but you know, a fall of the Roman empire. I think you're more likely to just see a, a, a decline, a, a general decline. Just as we get bewitched by these screens. <laughs> yeah. By, by the, possibilities of technology i suppose that's true like the telosians who become so Mm. you know bewitched by their mental powers that their society collapses or something yeah i guess that is true and you're right yeah i do like ready player one you could say of course that what's depicted in ready player one on one level is not a million miles away from what next generation predicted with the game which is Mm. kind of the same idea only there's this kind of drug-like element and this kind of mind control element and it's much more simplistic but you know if you uh you know 
commuting on on the tube and you look and everyone sitting there is playing angry birds on their iphone or whatever you know we're not a million miles away from that kind of or um pokemon go that was it pokemon go the one where they Mm. the sort of augmented reality version which people were getting totally obsessed with that was a bit like the game you know and and also doing quite dangerous things in order to get the you know right pokemon or or, or whatever you know that sort of interaction between the technology and the real world um where they sort of one overlaid over the other. But you're right. I mean, in, in Ready Player One, there's definitely this sense that as the world has kind of, you know, gone to the dogs, the the seduction of this kind of nostalgic uh, other world, this sort of alternate reality inside the VR machines becomes more appealing. And then the more time people spend in them, the less they care about the real world and the less the less significant the real world really seems to be. And there is also, I think, a sense in that novel of a sort of generational divide there as well, where, you know, especially for younger people who've grown up with it, who've grown up with this kind of alternate reality, that is almost as real as the real world. You know, they go to school in the VR world. They they kind of live their lives in the VR world. That's That becomes reality for them. And I suppose that's true. You could just kind of go down that rabbit hole and never, you know, never really emerge. And... um, that is kind of a danger. And again, you could say, I mean, you know, Star Trek has not so much had virtual reality, but obviously we've had the holodeck and the idea of, mm. you know, these kind of technological, uh, you know, photorealistic technological recreations. And in our world, the closest that we have to that is kind of VR. You know, you can now mm. play the um, that bridge bridge uh, crew Star Trek game yeah bridge crew, exactly you know with the VR helmet and it is a bit like being on the holiday I mean I haven't tried it but you know <laughs> yeah. as far as I can see it is yeah. is aiming to be a little bit like being on the holodeck so I suppose there is obviously you know we talked about technology in terms of these kind of entertainments and quite frivolous things there are also developments in technology to try to get us to the kind of Star Trek future that are a bit more serious I mean you know you've got the Tricorder Prize for developing you know what is basically a kind of I suppose I think it's is it more focused towards a medical Medical tricorder. I'm not sure. Oh, but, I'm not you know, sure. Sort of diagnostic, a useful scientific instrument, mm. basically. So, aside from the fact that it'd be kind of cool to have something that was called a tricorder, it is, actually, <laughs> you know, developing something for science that will hopefully be useful. You know, you've got the development of hypo sprays, which I think basically do essentially exist now, uh, one way or another. You've got something like 3D printing, which is obviously, you know, not a million miles away from the idea of a replicator. Mm. The difference being, I suppose, that the replicator, it's a bit unclear what's going in you know what's the kind of raw material whereas a 3d printer has to have this kind of raw material to work with you you know even things like um you know the isolinear chips in tng the isolinear chips seemed like extremely advanced now we have usb sticks we have all this kind of technology that you kind of stick in and stick out that kind of thing you you know in terms of the kind of daily life thing but then there are also the big things you know warp drive transporters um uh, tractor beams. I was looking into this. Uh, this was the preparation I did do for this episode was I had a look at this book, Star Trek Technology, which I'd recommend. It's got a nice coffee table book and it kind of goes through some of the Star Trek technology and matches up a little bit with what's been going on in the real world. Apparently it is now possible to move microscopic particles using a kind of tractor beam. Uh, the only downside is that the tractor beam superheats them in the process. So if you were to, you know, tractor a ship, you'd basically incinerate it at the same time. Um, but there are people working. Apparently Russia has committed the equivalent of of $14 trillion of, you know, rubles, I guess, Mm. um, to, uh, attempting to teleport a human being by the year 2035, you know, and there have been experiments in transporting, uh, what particles, I think I'm not, mm. I'm, not, I'm not totally up on that, but you know, this is technology that is, um, 
it's still kind of science fiction, but at the centre there are people trying to push those boundaries, trying mm. to kind of uh, work towards it. Whether there's a, you know, one of these Ephraim Cochrane out there trying to develop warp drive, <laughs> I don't know, because I think warp drive is probably actually one of the hardest in the whole of Star Trek. Mm. It, it's not necessarily theoretically impossible, but practically speaking, it's completely out of our grasp. Yeah. But, you know, if someone can work that one out, it really could change everything because, you know, quite apart from the aliens coming and finding us, we would have the opportunity to go outside the solar system. Yeah. We would have the opportunity to explore. We would have the opportunity to do what Star Trek does, you know, to boldly go to kind of see what's out there in a way that really, you know, at the moment we don't. I mean, the, the you know, the next big thing maybe in our lifetime, uh, perhaps we can send some people to Mars, but that's, you know, that's a long trip and, um, that's kind of about the furthest we're likely to get, isn't it, in terms of humans in space? Mm. And that's a real limiting factor if, if we want to kind of, you know, get to the sort of Star Trek future. The Star Trek future isn't just about development on Earth. It's also about humanity's future mm. in space and whether we have one or not. May, may, maybe the biggest contradiction in the, the future history of Star Trek in terms of World War Three and the mid-21st century is that even in the middle of this global conflict that was going on, the nuclear bombs, the eugenics, all this kind of thing, there were manned space exploration missions still going on. So this, this, this in many ways is going to be, a, a, if we look at it from a, uh, a realistic point of view, it is a continuity problem in terms of Star Trek in that <laughs> writers haven't necessarily watched the episodes or been talking to each other. But in the uh, Next Generation episode, The Royale, we, we learn about the Ares 4 mission to Mars, which took place in 2032. And in uh, Voyager's One Small Step, we have the launch of the, uh, I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of this, but the Charybdis in 2037, which was the first mission to leave the Sol system. So even in the midst of this war, even in the midst of society breaking down, you still had nations trying to, you know, go beyond the the final frontier you know there was still this outward looking you know notion and and even if it, it, you know th this being written into certain episodes of star trek is in indicative of continuity errors and the fact and that that's the problem nobody has sat down and done a proper timeline of world war 3 you know it, it is it is inconsistent there are different shows from different periods in the star trek universe saying different things it is in that sense as i said it is almost mythical it is almost these all these different possibilities that could be brewed into a proper chronological history but in a way i think that makes it more interesting i think it makes it more evocative because you don't quite see the whole picture and it allows you to wonder about all the different elements going on in in the near future to us but the you know the fairly distant past to the star trek you know future that we live in um when we watch the show so i think i think it's really interesting that even amidst all the darkness and all the you know humanity coming to the brink of extinction there may well have still been that hope and that star trek idea and maybe that's quite important. I mean, you know, I described it earlier as Star Trek's Dark Ages, and there is that sort of element there. If we, you know, it's all a bit murky, and aside from it all being <laughs> awful, it's also a bit murky, and the history of it is is slightly lost. I mean, I'm curious. You're obviously quite interested in this period of, you know, Star Trek's kind of imagined past. I, I, I said earlier, it's not something I've ever given a huge amount of thought to. I've never really particularly gone there. I suppose aside from Past Tense, which is an episode that I, or a pair of episodes that I do love, but I see that as a little bit different because that feels much more like our near future mm. rather than mm. this kind of world war three eugenics mm. was this kind of fantasy sci-fi future 
But I'm kind of curious, you know, we know we're getting lots of new Star Trek series. We know that there's, you know, the potential for these short treks to explore all kinds of different periods and so on. Obviously, Star Trek, especially now that it's getting gritty and bloodier and kind of more, you know, darker in many ways with the move, you know, away from network TV and syndication and all that kind of thing. There could be a decision to set a Star Trek, a Star Trek series or, or a Star Trek short trek or something in the midst of World War Three, uh, in the midst of the eugenics wars. Uh, I can definitely I can see that one. Mm. Uh, I, can, I can see the kind of marketing behind that one. <laughs> Is that something that would fascinate you? Or is there a sense that, you know, as people always say, but that's not Star Trek? You know, how far back can you go before you get to the bit where it's pre-Star Trek, it's mm. not really Star Trek? Because I think Enterprise had that kind of dilemma. And in a way, I sort of think Enterprise would have been more interesting if it had been a bit more pre-Star Trek and it hadn't mm. kind of got as far. So do you know what I mean? If we'd seen that development happening more slowly, whereas yeah. actually Broken Bow, it feels like, yeah, it all looks a bit different and it all feels a bit different, but they're you know, they are actually Starfleet. They're kind of, they've got a bit further forward than maybe we were expecting. Mm. But I do think there's that kind of tension and that interesting question, like if it goes too far back, if it goes too primitive, is that actually quite a different show? And is that really not, you, you, you know, do we have to then expand the bubble of Star Trek to be not just the kind of utopian future, but the kind of all the stuff that led up to it? Yeah, I like what you said earlier about how in a way you can, you date the Star Trek universe by first contact. I like that. I think I think that's really true. I think you know, the Star Trek first contact is the beginning of the Star Trek story. You know that that first moment between Zephram Cochrane and the Vulcans is the beginning of it all. Is that's where, in a way, I think exploring after that point would be Star Trek. I think exploring the early developments with the Vulcans. You know, certain space missions going out there, testing warp drive. You know the, the the reformation of humanity into uh, into what beco- what leads to the United Earth government and and the first inklings of Starfleet and that kind of thing. I think that would be an interesting project, even even if it's just um, a, a novel, or or even if it, you know, it might work better as a tie-in novel, to be honest, because you could probably do more um, skip you know, time a little bit quicker or maybe a trilogy, you know, of, of novels. Whereas I think a series, you would have to be a little bit more contemporary. don't know if it would work as a series, but I think anything before that, I think actually showing the conflict, I don't know if you need to do that. I think, I think the idea of that and what it is, is enough because it, it, it ultimately it's the point that it, it's the transformative like you say, dark age, modern dark age of humanity's history that allows you to get to the point where you've reached a level of enlightenment. So I, I don't know if you, we need to dwell on that as much. I would like to see the, like you say, the bit, the bit before enterprise, but the bit after first contact, that, that little 50 years or so, 70 years, that, in, that I think would be interesting. Well, there you go. Alex Kurtzman, if you're listening, <laughs> you've got a pitch right there. Of course for, he's listening. For what to do next. Of course, of yeah. Of course he's absolutely. listening. You know? <laughs> he's a regular. Yeah. Well, before we go, Tony, um, do you want to let our listeners know uh, where they can find you online if they want to get in touch with you? And also a little bit about what you've been up to uh, since we last had you on Primitive Culture. Uh, as usual, I've been everywhere with my fingers in a million pies. Um, I've been writing a book, which will be out later this year, hopefully, or next year, all about TV and things like that and uh, films. I've been um, doing bits bits more podcasting here and there. We, I've just launched a podcast network called We Made This, 
um, which you can find at We Made This Pod on Twitter. If you want to investigate some of the different uh, podcasts we have, including my X Files podcast, the X Cast, which I think I've mentioned before on the show. And you know, I'm doing, I'm writing. I've got my website um, www.setthetape.com, um, and you can catch my writings on my Twitter, which is still a, a AJ Black writer. So I'm I'm still around. You know, quite quite a few of you listen to this will know me, and uh, uh, we're, we're connected on on social media. But you know, come and follow me, or come and and you know say hi. Um, I'll be around the Babel conference as well, as always. But so, yeah, there's plenty going on, plenty going on. But it, it's been lovely to be back talking Star Trek, and you know, this is this is a topic I've wanted to do for a while. So it's. It's been a thrill. Thanks, Duncan. That's right. My pleasure. Always great to have you back. So, you know, but we'll have to keep an eye out there next time you, you know, if, you, if you're coming back in uh, evil Romulan guys, we'll have to be a bit more careful. <laughs> I'll, I'll, <laughs> you know, let us know next time you want to drop in. Yeah, I, I'll promise I'm not a member of the Eastern Coalition. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not. Well, that's that's something at least. <laughs> well, um, talking about the history of the future and Star Trek's Dark Ages is not the only thing we've been doing this week on Trek FM. So here's a listen to some of the other things you might have missed out on elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. And, and again, the Kelvins, they're enjoyable to me, but I'm so thrilled I don't have to hang, you know, whatever the need was for them in 2006, that's been 13 years ago. I mean, talk yeah. about water under the bridge and how much things have changed. The way the world looked, media and Star Trek land looked in 2006, and what the emotion and the vibe and all that was, is completely different now, and these movies are a holdover from that, and that's fine. But they, the, our Star Trek world does not depend on them. Earl Grey. It's nice that she gets some revenge at the end, because they reversed the whole connection to find them, right? But at the same time, that doesn't like... The ends do not justify the means. Literary Treks. But Tilly feels she's failed. And I think when you're at that age, failure feels almost um, like it's going to annihilate you because you're still quite fragile. Your, your sense of self is still quite fragile. That if something goes wrong, you think it's the end of the world. And in fact, it's only... The, the secret, of course, being a, gr a grown-up is that when things go wrong, you still feel like it's the end of the world, but you kind of pick yourself up a bit more quickly. But Tilly hasn't had those experiences. It's always been success. The Orb. On top of that, the Ferengi going to the Mirror Universe gives us the opportunity to kind of explore one last time the character of Quark in a way where we are able to see how he's grown. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. 
choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter, and online hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right.